So in 1970, Princeton Seminary did an experiment involving 40 seminary students. 40 seminary students were uh, recruited for this experiment, and the experiment, they were told, was how well they could deliver an extemporaneous message. About half of them were told that they were to give an extemporaneous message on how they could use their graduate degree, their seminary degree, out in the marketplace, out in their career. The other half were told to give an extemporaneous talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. About half of them were told that they had just a few minutes to prepare for their talk, and the other half were told, you got to go right now and give your talk. You need to leave the building, go out the building, through the alley, into the other building, they're waiting for you, give your talk, all right? Now, Princeton is cold in the wintertime, and that winter, it was five degrees outside. What the students didn't know was that the real experiment involved an underdressed man hacking and coughing and wheezing who was strategically placed in the alley. And every one of those students, when they left that building, went through the alley into the other building, every one of those students passed by this um, person who portrayed a homeless man. He was a, it was a plant, all right? That was the real experiment. 24 of the 40 seminary students just passed the guy while they were on their way to give their talk. 24, which left 16. Most of the 16 offered help to the homeless guy in the alley. Most of the 16 did, which means that their version of help was they left the building, went through the alley, went to the other building, and said to a staffer, you got a problem out here. You need to fix this thing, all right? In actuality, just a few of the seminary students actually helped the person who is in need, the homeless person. The underdressed guy. Fascinating experiment in behavior. And this is what they learned. They learned that you know, the experiment did not reveal that all 40 of these students or any of these students just had hardened, calloused hearts. That's not what was revealed in the experiment. What was revealed was that their hearts were conflicted, their hearts were distracted. And under pressure, some of them responded, most of them responded, nearly all of them responded in a way that revealed um, callous behavior. What the experiment revealed was that, you know, um, a failure of imagination. Most of these seminary students just didn't have it in their minds to even consider the fact that a homeless person might show up on a seminary campus. 
And so, you know, not having that imagination, that failure of imagination uh, caused them to display callous-like behavior, you see. And because they failed in their imagination, they had no plan to deal with that. There was no intentionality. There was no deliberateness in the way they see, the way they respond, the way they helped, you see. Very fascinating experiment. Now, we're in this series called I Heart See You, and one of the goals of this series, in addition to conveying to our church and to our community that we are a life-changing community that wants to put Christ first and pursue Him most, one of the purposes that we want to influence our world for Him, we want to contagiously influence our world for Him, and that requires deliberate intentional sight. That requires a set of lenses through which we see people. We see our world. We're going to see our world differently because we are seeing with the eyes of Christ. And so when we go out into our world, we're interacting with our world not as refugees, but we're interacting with our world as residents, doing life. Ordinary life, day by day, in the relating, in the going to work. And then when we go to work, we don't go to work because, you know, I oh, I owe, it's off to work, I go. Our view of work is God has put us strategically at this place, at this time, at this juncture, for his purposes to impact these people. So it's a vocation, vocare, calling we actually see our work as a calling from God to represent him. And we represent him as a community. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ as God were making his appeal through us. And so we're not just a congregation of individuals here. We are an embassy of heaven. People need to look at our church family and have a very clear picture of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like because they see Christ through us. They hear Christ through us. They are served by Christ through us. We implore you, Paul says, be reconciled to God. Well, that requires us to look at people differently through the eyes of Christ. And that brings us to our parable today, this very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you know, these parables just don't appear out of thin air. They appear in a context. And the context was Jesus teaching uh, the people of God. And Verse 25 says, and behold, a lawyer stood up. Now, when Jesus taught, when teachers taught, they typically sat to teach. And the audience would be sitting. And he would be, Jesus would be sitting, the audience is sitting. And then if there was a question, um, out of respect, the student would stand and address the rabbi, address the teacher. And that's what's going on here in verse 45. A lawyer, a lawyer. When we think lawyer, seeing that word, our mind goes to civil lawyer. 
That's not the kind of lawyer this lawyer was. This was a religious lawyer. This was a scholar. This was a theologian. A theologian, a religious scholar, a religious lawyer stood up and had a question. But Luke tells us the intent of the question, you see. He stood up to put him to the test. So this particular religious scholar, this particular religious lawyer uh, was among the group that uh, followed Jesus. And they were trying to trip him up. They were trying to get Jesus to say something that would then discredit Jesus so that they could say, see, he's not who he says he is, and he's not what he pretends to be, etc., etc. And so that's why this lawyer is asking this question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's nothing in the text that gives us any indication that it's a really sincere question, a seeking question. Others would ask questions like this in the Gospels to Jesus, and they were sincere questions. The same question, but same question, but this guy had an agenda. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's a flawed question, and here's why. You don't do anything to inherit. See, that's the point of inheritance. It's a gift. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And, and, and like a good, sharp rabbi, Jesus is not going to let himself get cornered. So he simply answers the question with a question. You see that there? Yeah, well, what's written in the law, right? A you know, person says to a rabbi, why do rabbis always answer questions with questions? Long pause. The rabbi responds. Why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Jesus isn't going to let himself get trapped. So he just responds with a question himself. Well, what's written in the law? You're the expert. You're the religious scholar. How do you read it? Now this guy most likely would have been in full religious lawyer uniform, which means he would have had his robe, the tassels, and then he would have had a box tied to his forehead, a box to his wrist called phylacteries. And in these phylacteries were little slips of paper which summarized the Hebrew Bible. And the summary, love God, love people. So I just picture Jesus saying to the guy, you're the expert pointing to the box. What's in the box? How do you read it? And he responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responded, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this, and you will live. Actually, Jesus is referencing Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, when he says that, because it's a reference to uh, 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 Moses in Leviticus, saying that you keep God's law, you're going to have life as God intends for you to have life. Do this, and you will live. You see what's going on? Question is met with a question. Scripture reference is met with a scripture reference. As these two rabbis are having a little battle of wits here. But right at this moment, the religious lawyer realizes that in this, uh, this verbal game of rhetorical chess, 
Jesus has just put him in check. Oh, yeah. Because when Jesus says, do this and you will live, the implication is, do you? Are you? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself? Do you do this all the time, every day, by the hour, moment by moment? Hmm? You know, it's possible to know the right answer without knowing God. And this guy, well, now he's got to justify himself, you see. That's why that verse is there. Desiring to justify himself, he then responds to Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? So, who, do I, who do I have to love? And you see, it means, so who isn't my neighbor? Who am I allowed not to love? Uh, Surely you don't expect me to love the Romans who are oppressing God's chosen people. Surely not. And surely you don't expect me to love the lackeys of the Roman Empire, the tax collectors and sinners. Surely, surely I'm excluded from loving those people. You tell me who, tell, define neighbor for me, Jesus, and then I will evaluate a person and I will see if they are worthy of my love. Yeah. That's what's going on here. And, uh, you know, if I were Jesus after that question had come, I would have responded with, And that is yet another reason why I am not your Lord. Instead, Jesus gives us this ever-familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. All right? Now, by the way, um, I'm just curious. Does anybody here know anybody from Samaria? Anybody? anybody? Anybody Facebook friends with anybody from Samaria? Just any? Anybody get a birthday card this year from anybody from Samaria? Yeah. I didn't think so. Which is why I believe that if Jesus were here today, here is how he would tell the parable. Once, there was a white guy traveling from Tulsa to Little Rock. He had a flat. He pulled over. While it was changing his tire, a truck pulled up and some rednecks got out, beat the guy up, stole his wallet, took his keys, and left him half dead. So this white guy's laying half dead in the ditch off the shoulder of the highway, and just then another white guy came. When he saw the car and saw the white guy's tire and saw the half-dead white guy in the ditch, this white guy looked at his watch, shook his head, and zoomed off. He left the white guy in the ditch because it was Sunday morning and he had to get to church. He was the pastor. (laughs) 
Well, another white guy showed up, president of a Bible college, biblical scholar, really smart, a lot of letters behind his last name. He slowed down. He gawked at the white guy in the ditch, shook his head, threw up a prayer, something about being warm and well-fed, and zoomed right on. So the white guy in the ditch, half dead, was passed over by two other white guys, and two other white guys were in the ministry. This white guy's going to die. And just before the white guy in the ditch was about ready to die, another guy shows up totally out of nowhere, a black guy. Oh, wait, I didn't say that right. He was a black guy. He's black. Because that's how white guys in Tulsa have talked about black guys. He's black. The black guy pulls over. He sees the white guy in the ditch. He gets out a first aid kit. The black guy starts cleaning up the white guy. The black guy wipes the dirt and dried blood away from the white guy. The black guy opens up a bandage for the gash on the white guy's arm. And when the black guy goes to clean the white guy's arm, that's when he saw the tattoo, a Confederate flag. The black guy takes the white guy to the Holiday Inn. They spend the night there in the same room. Black guy says to the manager, here's my credit card. How do you qualify for that credit card? This should be enough to take care of my friend for the next two weeks. If you need more, I'll take care of it when I come back. Are we good? We're good. And then Jesus looked at that religious lawyer straight in the eye. And he said, now you tell me, who was the neighbor? Which of these guys, white guy, white guy, black guy, which was the neighbor to the white guy in the ditch? And do you know that religious lawyer couldn't even whisper the black guy? Instead, he says... The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus replied, Will you go and do likewise? You get it. Yeah. Someone once said, You can safely assume that you have fashioned God in your own image when you think that God disapproves of all the people with whom you disapprove. Jesus was intentional and deliberate about the cast of characters in this parable. I mean, look at where he is. I mean, the audience is Jewish, he's Jewish, the lawyer's Jewish, so the victim is Jewish, as are the two clergy and those two religious leaders who failed the man represent the failed institution for which they serve. I'm talking about the temple. The temple in Jesus' day had become corrupt. Jesus says the temple, the temple days are over. I am the new temple. I am the meeting place between God and people for all. I am the fulfillment of our father's promise to father Abraham. 
I will make you into a new nation, and through you all nations will be blessed. Israel's chosen position was not an end in itself. It was that God would use Israel as his vehicle to bless the entire world. You want to do, you want to do a word study, Jesus says? Let's do a word study. Verse 34, the word in. Do you see it there? The word in literally means, it's a word picture, in. In means welcome for all. Welcome for all. But this is where the surprise comes in, you see. Because, you know, everybody listening to Jesus that day was expecting the third person to come around the bend to be an Israelite. Because in the Hebrew Bible, there's this phrase that keeps appearing over and over and over and over and over again. And it goes like this. It's the, the, the priests and the Levites and the people of God. The priests and the Levites and the people of God. That, that, was, just a, that was just a natural rote phrase. And it was just ingrained into Israel's conscience. And so, so they just expected the third person rounding the bin is going to be an Israelite and probably a farmer. Because farmers rock. Farmers rule. I mean, these religious leaders can't land the plane, but a farmer can. An unordained, pious Jewish farmer, he's going to get the job done. So that's who they're expecting. But no, it's not. It's, it's a Samaritan. Samaritans were biracial. Samaritans were the uh, people group that had come centuries before Jesus when the Assyrian Empire invaded Israel and took 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, basically dissolved the 10 northern tribes, and then um, colonized that area. There were Israelites who had mingled with the Assyrian people and they were the people of Samaria, the Samaritans. And, and so this centuries-old rift took place between the Samaritans, the people of Samaria, and uh, the people of Judea, the Jews, those who remained, returned after Babylonian exile. And I mean, it was heated. There was hatred. Uh, in Jesus' day, Orthodox Jews would travel around Samaria so as not even to get what they saw as filthy Samaritan soil on the soles of their feet. <laughs> uh, this is personal to me. My little granddaughter, she's biracial. Our daughter-in-law is African-American. Our son is Caucasian-American. She is just beautiful. I have a thousand other pictures like this. <laughs> what sick world would discriminate against her and others? You see what Jesus is doing? The good Samaritan does not check the victim's ID. He dresses his wounds, 
puts him on his saddle, he gets himself bloody, he leads him on foot to an inn, he takes the form of a servant. It costs, it's risky. The robbers could still be nearby. He's gonna have to part with his oil and his wine. But merciful hearts are never idle in the face of suffering. And so the real question of the parable isn't, who is my neighbor? The real question of the parable is, who am I? Can I be the neighbor? That's the question. Am I someone who can be interrupted? Am I someone who can risk embarrassment? Am I someone willing to part with my oil and my wine and my money for the good of someone not like me? Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is rescuing this religious lawyer from the theological cage that that guy built around himself to keep him from loving others. Jesus is mercifully, mercifully rescuing that guy from that cage. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, how can I be a neighbor? How can I be a neighbor? And if you want to be right... If, you, if your goal is being right, you can wash your hands of someone. But if your goal is love, you can't. There it is. Now, whenever I teach on the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, um, there's typically a question that comes up, comes up in my mind, and it comes up in the mind of the listeners. And, and it's, the quest, it's this question. It's this question. So, pastor, are you saying that I have to give money to every cardboard sign on North Prospect? Is that what you're saying? Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, all right? Uh, and here's how I've answered that question. Actually, our small group uh, answered that question. Uh, some time ago, and this is this is what we did. Um, we took this bag, and this is our oil and wine. And so each of us in our small group, uh, we I've got about a half a dozen of these left. Uh, we started out with uh, about a dozen, and so this is this is my thing of oil and wine. And so here's uh, tissue, and here's. Uh, uh, Nutter butter, uh, and here's um, uh, some uh, hand wipes, and then here's uh, some winter's coming, chapstick, uh, and so here's uh, beef jerky, uh, and uh, here's a packet of uh, hot chocolate, and, uh, uh, and here's a uh, here's gift certificate to McDonald's, okay? That's how we end. I, I don't give cash. Okay? Now, if you choose to do that, I'm not going to judge you, all right? Uh, I totally respect that, but this is my oil and wine. This is, this is how we choose to handle that. I guess what I'm saying is that, um, uh, I'm going to need that back, by the way, too, so. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. My question is, do you have a plan? 
See, do you have a, just, do you, you got to have a plan because people who see the world from the perspective of heaven, they have, they have a plan. Um, and and you, you can have a heart of compassion, but you need a compassion plan, see? And so that's, that's, what, I would, that's what I would invite you to consider. And make that a small group night. Make that something for your group to do together and have uh, each of you get some of those ingredients and put it together. We, we put together 120 of these things uh, in about a matter of an hour. And then we prayed that God would uh, help us use them. And so, um, so there, all right? While you're thinking about the point blank compassion that will come your way, because you're prepared and you're ready. This parable challenges all of us to remember the half-dead people that we come into contact regularly, every day, starting at home and heading over into the office. And these folks need to be touched. These folks need love. These folks need the word of Christ. The neighbor that we're called to love is often not the one we choose, but the one God chooses for us. And in fact, this neighbor is often not one we would have chosen had not God done the choosing. (laughs) I don't know that the Jew and the Samaritan would have chosen one another as their neighbors, but what made them neighbors was one man's unchosen calamity and another man's chosen compassion, but only in response to an unchosen, inconvenient, time-consuming, work-delaying, expensive need of another And the shock of this parable is that God expects us to love needy strangers, even foreigners, as neighbors. And if this is true, how much more does he want us to love our actual immediate neighbors, the ones we've got to put up with regularly? Because I can prepare one of those bags and I can give it to someone and drive on, uh, but you know, they don't live with me and I don't live with them. And sometimes it's the ones that we live with the neighbors in our proximity. That's who we have a really hard time loving. G.K. Chesterton once said, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. And yeah, this parable does speak to those of us with whom we're feeling maybe enmity with, you know, your former colleague, your former employer, your former spouse, your former you fill in the blank. And you go, really? Do I have to, God? And you know, like a good rabbi, Jesus just responds with a question. Matthew 5, 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The point is not who is my neighbor. The point is who am I? How can I be a neighbor? And Jesus says, you be that person and you will inherit eternal life. Why? Because he says, 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And this is where the parable drills even deeper. Because, you see, Jesus' point isn't merely, how should I treat a racial enemy? His point's more profound. His point is, which of these three was neighbor to the Jew in the ditch? In other words, Jesus flips the lawyer's question so that it's not even the lawyer who is challenged to help the injured enemy. Instead, Jesus put the lawyer in the ditch. If you were in the ditch half dead, from whom would you refuse help? Here's the gospel we're in a ditch. Spiritually, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. But while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, Jesus entered this dangerous world. And he rescued us, not merely at the risk of his life like the Good Samaritan, but at the cost of his life. He became that victim. He took your place and my place. He was rejected by the priests and the Levites. And no one rescued him from that ditch. On the cross, Christ paid a debt we could never pay ourselves. That's why Jesus, he's not the good Samaritan church. He's the great Samaritan. And the great Samaritan says, come unto me, and I will give you. That's Christianity. I will give you. We say, Lord, I can't give you anything. He doesn't want anything. I will give you. Christianity is not what you give to God. It's what he gives you. That's your rescue. He is your rescue. He is your deliverance. I will give you. That's the gospel in four words. Will you receive it? 